Hey, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Mike Adelic. I'm your host, Mike Brancatelli, and welcome, welcome to the show. If you're new, welcome here. This is Mike Adelic, and this is a weekly podcast where I try and explore a lot of big ideas through a psychedelic perspective. We're not always necessarily talking about psychedelic substances and tripping, but we're focusing on cognitive liberty, the right to determine how we want to alter our consciousness, what kind of substances we use, how we use our minds, and the right not to be aggressed upon by anybody else. As long as we're not harming anybody else, nobody should be harming us when it comes to our mental health, our minds, and the right to control our consciousness. Uh, I, uh, I like to talk to all kinds of people on this show and uh, get a lot of different perspectives. I believe that creating a space for a truly open dialogue about some of the most serious and important issues that we could be talking about in the world um, are, is very important, you know, and, and I believe that everything is connected. You know, everything is connected. There's no separate, you know, this is business, this is pleasure, this is, you know, this is... Uh, science, this is math, this is, you know, uh, mystical experiences or woo-woo stuff or whatever. There's, there's some truth that comes from everything. Everybody with an opinion, with an idea, with a perspective, with uh, work that they are pursuing has some level of truth. They have some reason why, what is pushing them, what is, what is going on, why, are, why do they believe in the things that they believe in, why are they pursuing the work that they're pursuing. I want to find out why. I want to see if we can find common ground with each other. I want to see if we can find some kind of way to connect the dots in all areas of our life, to be whole and complete human beings that don't mask our problems and hide who we are, but who accept who we are and come into the the, the the community together to lift each other to lift ourselves up and in turn lifting ourselves up we can then help lift the community up and and I believe that this is uh, this is something very important that's lacking in our society is the lack of community connection sure we have we have a lot of uh, you know connectedness on the internet but uh, you know we're like teenagers where the the internet is very young and we're, you know we're like maybe even not teenagers we're like babies we're we're like babies who are attracted to a shiny new toy a shiny new plaything you know and at first we get our hands on it and we're shaking it and we're rattling it around and we're screaming at each other and we're clawing and you know but eventually we mature with it we learn more about it we learn how to use it we learn how to lose it use it in ways that serve us that help us that aid us and um and yeah, and, and so that's what this, this podcast is about. My mission is to create a space for these informative and inspiring and unconventional conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. You know, that really I want to stimulate the, I want to stimulate your mind to cause connections between disparate thoughts and ideas. And, you know, of course, always challenging the status quo. You know, the status quo is stale and lame. You know, the mainstream, you know, as Tom Wood says, the three by five card of allowable opinion in our in our world. It's it's uh, inside the box, lame, lame, lame and boring. So there's a lot of wonderful people out there, a lot of wonderful organizations, people that are diving into areas that have been 
uh, absent from our society uh, for a long time. Areas like psychedelic research and also areas like human rights, civil liberties, you know, racial justice. You know, these things are connected. Like I said, everything is connected. There's domino effects that happen. You know, we're, we don't necessarily live in a linear world. We live in a, a very spherical, connected web uh, uh, world. And that's why I, I really loved t- today's podcast episode. Absolutely loved today's podcast episode with Ismail Ali, a policy fellow at MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. I talk about these guys all the time, and you know they're just they're 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 amazing. You know they're really leading the the new you know Renaissance movement, if you will, the new resurgence in psychedelic research and studies. They just uh, hosted a psychedelic science conference. Um, out in uh, in Oakland in April, and I think it was like the largest turnout ever for a psychedelic conference. So big things are happening uh, in our world. And you know, I, I just want to say, you know, with with regards to this episode, because me and uh, you know Ismail and I, we uh, we get into these these things in the in the episode about human rights and stuff. But you know, I just want to say, like, you know, we're seeing this 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 rise in the psychedelic conferences and the psychedelic you know, media, the podcast, the YouTube videos, it's, it's, you know, it's spreading, it's spreading. And that is, I mean, this is, this is what it's all about. You know, it's about spreading this, this message, spreading this information, spreading the compassion and the care and the empathy and the love and the desire to live in peace and prosperity for, for everybody, you know, spreading the idea to respect individuals and treat them how you would like to be treated. These kinds of things are very psychedelic ideas and, you know, they're all connected. They go together. And for some reason, there's certain aspects, certain sectors of our society that are shut off. You know, it's taboo. It's not, you know, we don't talk about these kinds of things here. You know, and it's like, to me, it's like, how could you not possibly talk about one of the most important things that could ever happen to a human being in his life, his or her life? You know, and I remember the Johns Hopkins study that, that happened under uh, Roland Griffiths uh, that uh, they conducted when they, um, they they administered uh, psilocybin, which is the active uh, ingredient in, in, in magic mushrooms. They administered psilocybin to uh, terminally ill patients, and they said that uh, taking psilocybin was one of the most profound and important experiences of their lives. And I can attest to that myself. You know, I think that taking LSD was probably one of the most profound moments of my life and, you know, changed the course of my life. It opened opened me up to new ways of thought, a new perspective. And, um, you know, I'm very, I'm very glad that I was, that, that came into my, uh, that came into my life at the time that it did. Uh, I, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but I felt that, um, you know, I grew up in a mostly, mostly kind of unconscious kind of way, not really aware of myself and aware of my surroundings. There's a little bit of noise outside. I apologize for that. I, I'm, uh, I'm outside right now. I had to go mobile today to record this intro, but um, I, I lived a very unconscious life, not really knowing who I was and not really being aware, you know, and, and I guess the best way I could describe it is that like, it almost seemed like, um, I don't know if you guys have ever felt like you kind of just, you, you feel lazy and tired and you're kind of a little out of it and groggy or whatever, you know, just <laughs> felt like I was living like that, you know, living with a veil over me. And then, you know, taking psychedelics lifted that veil. I saw the world a lot clearer from new perspectives, new things seem possible. 
And I think that this is something that we are, uh, you know, desperately missing from our, from, from, from integrating into all, all areas of our society. You know, I mean, psychedelic research and psychedelic healing and psychedelic use is not just for, you know, these kind, you know, these like weird hippies over here. I think it's for everybody. And I think that, you know, I'm not saying that everybody should take it, but what I'm saying is everybody should be allowed to have the choice. Their the option should be allowed. And and I think that, you know, psychedelics is just as important as as uh, as something like sex or eating. You know, it's like it's a, it's a it's a fundamental part of what makes us human from from early on in our uh, in our evolution. Human beings have been experimenting with ways to get outside of themselves ways to get out of their own minds and because when you get out of your mind you're able to go into your heart you're able to open up your heart you're, op- you're able to open up new spaces and places for being uh it's it's really truly an amazing thing um but i don't want to go on too long in this intro i just want to you know welcome any any newcomers to the podcast and also um you know just just talk a little bit about the connection you know the connection because like i said uh, Ismail and I get into this. We talk about this a lot, and I think with, with, uh, with what's happening in the world right now, it's very important that we talk about these things. It's very important that we have that our dialogue is heard, and you know that's the way. You know, people talk about wanting to change the world. You know, and I think that it's like, well, okay, how do you do that? You know, well, we can't. We can't just take control of the levers of power and force change. That never works out good. That's proven to be. You know, that's proven a failure throughout history. So we can't do that. So what can we do? You know, what can we do? And I think that one of the one of the ways that we can change the world is by changing ourselves, changing ourselves. An individual level, you know, really making sure that we, you know, get, we create spaces for conversation and dialogue so we can spread information and knowledge and wisdom and we can introduce radically new ways of doing things to make radical changes, to make big changes, to make the changes that we want to see, you know, stopping the wars, stopping, you know, war on drugs, stopping, you know, the, our incarceration rates, you know, these, these, these terrible things, you know, the trauma trauma and and we're we're going to get into this in the podcast today but this is something that I feel extremely passionately about and I think that one of the things that we can't deny and you know I I don't know what the spectrum of you know the political spectrum of most people that listen to this show is but you know everybody knows I'm an anarchist but uh I guess more I would more label myself as a voluntarist because I just feel that that sounds better you know uh I guess when you say anarchist people think like oh no you know it's fucking chaos but I would say voluntarist and that means that I believe all human interaction should be voluntary and I think when you say it like that most people would agree you know we shouldn't really be forcing other people uh when you force people you create an uh, it's a hostile act it's an aggressive act it, it creates a distortion and it, and that distortion has a ripple effect and i think that we're seeing that you know there's so many people that are suffering there's so many sicknesses in our society and i feel the pain in a lot of people i feel the insanity i see you know it's hard to see and it's hard to watch you know the 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 repeating of the of the same kinds of things and you know i'm talking about basically you know all the horrors that are going on in the in the Middle East it's just really really sad you know i mean people talk about oh there could be a world war 3 there could be a world war 3 well guess what i mean 
You know, for the people in the Middle East, it has been World War III for a long, long time. You know, I, and I, I, I implore every single person listening to this podcast to go and, you know, just listen to, listen to different sides of the argument. Listen to what people are saying. You know what I mean? Listen to, do your research. Go online and search. Look for why. Why have we been in the Middle East? What's the, you know, one of the things that's going on right now is, oh, Russia hacked the elections. Russia, Russia. What is going on with this Russia thing? What is it that Vladimir Putin is actually saying when, the, when he talks about things? Listen to him. Listen to what he says. You know, I mean, obviously the guy is not a good guy. He's a politician. I don't think, I think most politicians aren't good people. You know, and, and obviously Vladimir Putin is not a good guy. But he's, in, he's when, you, when he talks about foreign policy, when he talks about the United States' aggressive expansion and escalation into the Middle East, He's right about a lot of things. And so it's okay to take little bits and pieces from people that you might find, you know, repulsive, that you might find uh, offensive, that you might find disgusting. But I think there's a little bit of truth that can be found with everything, with everybody, because everybody's consciousness, everybody's point of view comes from some meaning, some purpose, some kind of nugget of, of what they consider to be true. And it's, I think, our job as intelligent human beings to sit down and, and, and be open, be as open as we possibly can, listen to everything that they're saying, the reasons why, and then, you know, do our research and, and check and double check see if it checks out and see if it makes sense and see if it agrees with us and if it and if it does let's talk about it and, and have a dialogue and have a conversation and if it doesn't let's do the same thing but let's not smack you know smack each other down smash each other to pieces and these sorts of things you know if we want if we want to see change we have to be able to sit at the table with each other and talk about change you know and um and I think it's really, really important. You know, it's uh, it's one of these things that seems so simple. You know, it seems so simple. You know, when we're we're children, we're taught, don't hit other people and don't take their things. That's every single parent, if they're a good parent, teaches their children that. And you know, for the most part, schools and society teach that and preach that to children. But for some reason, as we grow older those rules just don't apply. It's, it just seems like it's okay. You know, people, we have adults in this world that behave like children, you know, that, that take other people's things and, and, and hit people. But it's, uh, it, that causes trauma, it causes pain, it causes suffering. And those ripple effects, those side effects have such a massive, massive, deep, deep impact into what happens in our world? What kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want to live in this? Do we want to continue down this path of aggressive expansion and escalation and domination and control and fear and subjugation? Or do we want to inject the ideas that we're talking about on the podcast today, the ideas of liberty and human rights, the ideas of direct experience, you know, owning your mind and owning your consciousness and owning up to the responsibility of being a human being and and you know accepting you know who we are in the society that we live in and working you know to improve ourselves and in turn improve the communities in which we live in you know i think that these are things that all people want i think we can strive to make the world a better place if we do these things and you know of course it's never going to be perfect 
You know, life is a journey. It's about putting the the puzzle pieces together. But the journey to strive for perfection, I think, is is a worthy a worthy cause. Well, anyway, I'm not going to go on too much longer because our guest says some really amazing things, and I really really enjoyed this conversation with Ismail Ali. I, I hope to talk to him again. I hope to meet him. Uh, we we had this conversation over Skype, and uh, and yeah, I'm just really glad that there's people out there. And and look, like I said. You know, there's there's a lot of different perspectives in the world. There's a lot of people that uh, that ha- grew you know grew up in different kinds of circumstances and and have an interpretation of the world that maybe we don't have or we don't know. And you know, I saw a video the other day, I think, from someone called Roaming Millennial, and she was talking about. She said, like, you know, colored people, you're not oppressed, and uh, or something like that. And it was like, I'm like, I'm looking at her, and I'm like, all right, well, she's white. It just seemed a little strange for me like like to see someone like that like comment on you know we, at the end of the day we don't know what people are going through okay we don't know what individuals are going through but i know deep down that everybody knows that everybody has gone through something in their lives you know for me uh you know i'm i'm white but i come from italian uh, ancestry you know, I have certain kinds of physical characteristics and features that, that make me look different than, you know, than other people. You know, I'm not particularly tall. I remember, you know, uh, I used to be a little bit heavier than I, than I am now. I lost a little bit of weight, but, uh, you know, there's challenges that come along with that as well. You know, so there's all these challenges and, you know, it's men and women face them all. We all face them. Um, so you never, you never really know what somebody is going through. You know what I mean? You never know how somebody was raised, what they were taught, you know, where they went to school, how they were treated, were they hit, were they abused, you know, so those, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of different things. And, um, you know, uh, one of these, one of these things that, uh, we talk about is also, you know, microaggressions, you know, what is that? At first I, when I first heard of that, I thought it was kind of silly, you know, I thought it was a silly little thing, but I, I do believe that there are these kinds of, uh, almost invisible uh, invisible aggression, and you know, I'm I'm going to talk about this in another podcast. I'm going to go deeper into the microaggressions that we get from the state, and how the state distorts humanity and creates a ripple effect. You know, the uh, the, the authoritarian state uh, creates a hostile environment that mutates humanity and causes stress, trauma, anxiety, and then that kind of you know has a ripple effect throughout all of society because it creates a hierarchy and a pathology. You know, it creates sociopathic behavior and people to to act like like locusts and, and you know that's that is that is one of the elements of, of how the state distorts and what the state how the state creates things and you know um, the the game that they set up you know essentially that uh, you know the big one percent get to play in the corporations and the banks and everybody uh, they get to play in the in the state game anyway. We're going to get to this conversation because it's a great one. I hope you guys enjoy it. It's Ismail Ali, Policy Fellow of MAPS. We're talking human rights, cognitive liberty, psychedelics, uh, all sorts of things. Um, If you like this podcast, please share it, like it, subscribe, share it with your friends, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell a coworker, tell a dog, tell a cat, tell, no, don't tell a cat, no, uh, tell, uh, tell everyone. And, and if you want to support me, if you want to go the extra mile, just go to iTunes, take out your phone, go to the podcast app in iTunes, subscribe, uh, leave a five-star review. You could just click five stars if you enjoy the podcast. That's it. If you want to go a little further, you can write me uh, a review. You can leave a review 
and uh, and on iTunes. And I love getting these reviews. It's amazing. Like, I mean, it's part of you know feeding my ego for sure. But come on, who doesn't like a good ego? You know, a good uh, a good ego buffet, <laughs> uh, so to speak. So. Yeah, one of the reviews that I, I got recently is from uh, Twain again. Uh, I think I'm going to start reading some reviews in the podcast because it's kind of fun. So this is uh, from Twain again. It says, thanks, Mike. Uh, what makes Mike interesting is his ability to inspect spirituality and metaphysics while retaining a deep understanding of more pragmatic fields like politics and sociology. Also, he's generally jovial and unflappable guy who is fun to listen to. I really miss Mike on Part of the Problem podcast. But I'm starting to enjoy Mike Delic more and more. One suggestion would be to start collecting bad trip stories uh, and and interviews and assemble them to a bad trip episode. Cool. Thanks, uh, Twain, again. I appreciate that. Um, let's see. We'll do maybe uh, maybe one more review because I got a couple of uh, I got a couple of reviews in um, in the last couple of days. So one of it once uh, once a person says. Killer podcast, kills it every time. Awesome show, great job. Uh, here's one from uh, Quint Kid, eighteen seventy three. So much more than just discussions about drug use. Mike talks to interesting people who come at the ideas of expanding consciousness through a multitude of different ideas and experiences. Even for someone that doesn't experiment with drugs, the show provides tons of insight from different people about the human experience and the world beyond our base sense perception. Definitely recommend. Thanks, Quint Kid, 1873. All right, cool. So, so those are the kinds of reviews that I'm getting, and it's uh, it's pretty awesome. You know, I really I really enjoy them, and you know, this feedback it like really really helps the show. So, you know, you guys that are participating and leaving reviews and and messaging me and, and rating the show uh, really helps me grow the show, and you know, gives me confidence to continue doing the show and making it better and pushing these ideas out there. You know, it's like I just feel like. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just awesome. It's just awesome. I love doing this show. I love communicating with you guys. And I love having conversations like the one we're about to hear. Also, if you want to support the show even further, you can check us out on Patreon. I have a Patreon page. And for as little as a dollar a day, you can support the show. Or a dollar a day. A dollar a month. Yeah, think about that. A dollar a day is not bad. But a dollar a month, that's even better. You know, you thought a dollar a day, a dollar a month. How about that? You know, it's really, uh, it's, it's really uh, just a little bit of money. You know, just help us uh, keep the lights on over here at the Mikeadelic Studios. And uh, yeah, for a dollar a day, you could support the show and uh, and help me get new things. Like, uh, I just got a. Um, I just got a pop filter, so hopefully the quality is, is coming out better. You know, just little things to help improve the show and, and stuff like that. So uh, we'd really appreciate it. Either way, whatever you guys do, leaving an iTunes rating and review, sharing it with your friends, telling people about it, talking about it, uh, however you choose to support and share, uh, it's much appreciated. And thank you very much. All right, well, that's uh, my little intro. It turned out to be a lot longer than just a little intro. But uh, that's how it always is on this show with, uh, with me and Mike Delic. So hope you guys enjoy. And uh, here's the conversation with Ismail Ali. Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control 
consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Is a Information is power, but we have to seize, seize the, opportunity. the opportunity. The opportunity. Especially with the kind of like rapid increase in great research, but um, it's really like nice to see the diversity of how people are kind of articulating it. Since, as I'm sure you know, we, we're going to need a pretty big diversity of content to to make the kind of changes we're hoping to make. So, well, there you go. I, I hope to be included in that piece of the diversity puzzle as well with this podcast. And, and thank you for being Please. on. Yeah, my pleasure. So yeah, so um, I, I initially reached out to uh, Natalie. Actually, I saw her speak at the Horizons conference in New York, and uh, I, thought, I thought what she was talking about was really interesting. And then she had directed me over to you. And so I got to admit, I, I didn't really, I, I, I did a little bit. I did a quick kind of uh, lookup of, of some of the work that you've done. Well, why don't you, uh, I guess, tell me uh, what, uh, who you are and what you're getting into? Yeah, sure. Um, I, well, first off, I, I want to just before, before that, I'll comment on the fact that it's, uh, pretty, it, it's what, what Natalie was talking about at Horizons was pretty specific and definitely part of the kind of the cutting edge of what I see as the next steps of kind of where psychedelic law and policy and culture is going. So I appreciate, I appreciate that it was her conversation and her kind of speech that kind of sparked that interest because what she's talking about, what we're both talking about is I think really relevant. I'm sure we'll get into it in this hour, but, um, I am a, um, born and raised native Californian who, uh, is the child of two immigrants. My father was a Pakistani immigrant. My mother was from Colombia. Um, I was born and raised in Fresno, California and studied philosophy and writing as an undergraduate and then came up to the California Bay Area to, to study law. Um, I attended law school at, uh, at UC Berkeley and where I focused primarily on criminal justice policy reform. Um, I worked for the ACLU for a while and I also worked for an organization called Muslim Advocates that did kind of um, that does uh, political advocacy on behalf of uh, Muslim Americans in the United States. And then I did about a year also work in the realm of uh, international human rights, where I focus primarily on victims' rights, um, both locally in California and around the world. And then about, about a year and a half ago now, in April 2016, I um, went with Natalie Ginsberg, with my supervisor, Natalie Ginsberg, MAPS Policy and Advocacy Manager, to the United Nations, where the UN General Assembly Special Session on Drugs, which was the first UN uh, kind of convening on what they called, quote unquote, the world drug problem, um, happened uh, since 1997, I believe. So it was the first one in like 19 years. What, and, what, uh, is, uh, what is the world... They call it the world drug problem. That was the name of it. 
Well, the, the, it was called UNGAS, U-N-G-A-S-S, the UN General Assembly Special Session. Um, but the special session was called in, in response, yes, to what they call the world drug problem, which is essentially how to deal with um, the international drug control scheme and what changes, if any, should be made. Um, just to give you an idea of what they're thinking, in 1997, when they got together, the theme and the goal was a drug-free world. Um, as you can probably imagine, that goal has not been particularly successful since 1997. Um, and now there's this kind of new attention toward what the next phase of the global drug control scheme would look like, whether it's more enforcement, more structure, less enforcement, whatever. You know, that's currently what's being discussed uh, both at the session in 2016 and then leading up to the next major session, which will, which will be in 2019. Ugh, too many sessions. we got to get rid of one, at least. <laughs> Lots of sessions. Um, I'm most concerned about the sessions that's running the DOJ right now. Right, right, exactly, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you caught that. Yeah, but anyway, so I started, I, I you know went to the UN with Natalie in April 2016, and then since then, pretty much, I graduated from law school, passed the California bar exam, and I'm now doing, I've spent a, a, about a year doing policy advocacy work uh, with Natalie and with MAPS, kind of really helping MAPS shape its uh, shape shape the conversation around cultural legal access to psychedelics, both in medical and non medical contexts. That's that's amazing! Wow, that's a tremendous amount of work. Uh, so that's awesome that you're getting all involved in that. Um, what led you into being interested in in studying? Uh, you know, philosophy and then civil rights. I mean, those are those are kind of very profound and deeply interesting topics to be to be looking at. And then, you know, what what led you to go on to to continue that path of uh, you know getting a degree, a law degree, and and whatnot? Yeah, it, it was a windy path. I'll tell you that much. Um, a lot a lot kind of happened that um, you know at the time. It's one of those situations where at the time that especially when I was younger, that I was making kind of different decisions about what I'd studied and what I'd be interested in. I didn't really know then that it would kind of lead me to the work that I'm doing now, which feels like exactly what I should be doing with my life. It feels really appropriate. Um, I was raised, uh, so I was raised in California and I'm, uh, I'm Muslim and my family is Muslim. And my kind of experience, uh, my political experience as a teenager in the years following 9-11 was really, really was, was very strongly defined by um, American domestic and foreign policy after 9-11. So a lot of my experience as a young person is was under what I called forced political socialization, where even though when I was a teenager, I didn't necessarily, early in my teen years, I didn't necessarily see myself as a political person. And in fact, my parents left their respective countries partially to avoid having to be having to be too kind of oppressed or um, otherwise um, kind of affected by their political economic context. Um, I, you know, had kind of no choice because the, the politics and the way that the United States was dealing with foreign and domestic policy kind of came to my door. Um, the way that Muslims and Muslim Americans were treated after 9-11, especially with respect to kind of domestic surveillance and restriction of civil liberties, really influenced how I thought about politics and how I thought about my own kind of uh, role as as a Muslim or as an American or as an you know the children of immigrants as you know these very these 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 
varied identities that I have and that I had um, that kind of forced me to be really politically aware of what exactly was going on in the world. And that meant, that meant understanding both my identity um, in that context and also, you know, de facto what, what the U.S. government was doing. So it was pretty early on, like, you know, in the, you know, a few years after 9-11 that um, I really was forced to become really hyper aware of what it meant to have different identities and have different political kind of affiliations in the United States. And how, how old were you uh, at that time? Well, I was I, I'm I was 11 at the time that 9/11 occurred. Okay, so um, right about like and, junior and high around that age. Exactly, yeah. which everyone knows is already a pretty sensitive time. Right, right. Um, and yeah, when I was when I was 14 years old, a few years later, actually, after a swim, I had a, a swim like after school swim practice or something, and I uh, was uh, approached by an elderly Vietnam War veteran who actually approached me because I was wearing a shirt that said the word Muslim on it in really big letters. And uh, then he, he cussed me out. <laughs> he, he was like an elderly man who was really, I think, uh, upset and really traumatized by what he was seeing occurring in Iraq at the time. This was in 2004. And he, he kind of like put a lot of his anger about Muslims and about the Middle East and about American foreign policy onto me. Um, and I was like a literally a young teenager at the time, and I was like, "Wow, what's going on?" And it, that kind of that kind of started me on this path of really needing to be aware of not just my identity and what it meant to represent what I represented, but also understand like my own relationship with spirituality and and kind of all that. Yeah. Um, and that really led to the combination of factors that I think led me here, which is to say, like, a a really complex understanding of my own identity. Um, as a person in the world, you know, both culturally, personally, religiously, whatever. And then also the disillusionment that comes with that kind of treatment um, led me to do a lot of seeking, spiritual seeking. And that led me to my first experience with mushrooms when I was 16 years old. Um, was that was that a then, profound experience for you? Yeah, yeah. That, that experience kind of instilled in me what, I, what I've been calling spiritual resilience, which uh -huh. was essentially the idea that even if I was feeling really disillusioned about my own identity and my own treatment in America, that there was some deeper underlying truth that was more relevant to my experience than, you know, what I was seeing in the news every day. Um, and, you know, between that, that led to this decision to study civil rights and to study liberty, like, you know, liberty, uh, civil liberties and kind of the constitution and these big kind of concepts that, weren't necessarily what I was thinking about at a younger age, but suddenly became really relevant to me in, you know, with this combination of openness as a result of my experience as a young person, and then also the whole kind of political context. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. And to have, uh, you know, a profound spiritual experience uh, facilitated by a wonderful psychedelic compound like yeah. psilocybin yeah. at such a young age is such a great gift. Um, and you're right. It, it, it brings you back to that primordial self, that self that we can, that we're all the same, that we all connect to, you know, that, that exactly. self that you probably identified as when you're born, when you're a baby and you're just living as this thing. And then all of a sudden <laughs> people are, are telling you what you are and they're, you know, old men are cursing at you and all this stuff. It's like, what did I ever do? You know? Um, yeah, exactly. so exactly. wow, wow. What a story. Um, that's, that's, that's amazing. So 
So uh, it must have been pretty difficult. Was it pretty difficult then growing up, uh, you know, as a teenager? Was it was it challenging for you or was having that experience to that, that give you some kind of understanding, maybe some compassion to try and work with it and kind of keep your head down and study that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. I would I would say both. I feel like I on one hand, there is, I did experience what I think I experienced a, a more challenging kind of period in my life as a result of the context for a variety of reasons. I mean, like I was, you know, after this experience with uh, with mushrooms, I became I actually ended up studying my own religion a lot more. I did took speech and debate. Um, I, I really kind of like upped my personal understanding of the context and I became pretty outspoken. I was interviewed by my local newspaper when I was a teenager. Um, I, but as a result of that, I, you know, received a death threat to my school. So, so like, I, you know, I see that in retrospect as being something that was certainly challenging, um, in the sense that it required me to really put my own, uh, experience in this really, you know, stark context context. Um, at the same time that, that did motivate me, you know, I can't pretend like I don't, I didn't get whatever value I could out of that challenge. And it did motivate me to, to focus on my studies, to focus on what I really believe to be important in the world, um, which was to say really ending that oppression and ending that fear. Because, you know, I I think at the time I, I even at the time that that happened, that this that this man kind of approached me and cussed me out, I actually laughed at the time because I didn't really know how to respond to it. My friends ended up standing up and be like, hey, you should leave. Like, this isn't appropriate. But um even now, in retrospect, I think back and I, I, I know people like him today. You know, I know people who are afraid and who see these major terrible things happening in the world, whether it's, you know, war or poverty or oppression, and who respond with anger and respond with rage. I don't really fault people for responding that way. I think that it's a natural reaction for humans to see that kind of suffering and to respond with that kind of really intense passion. It's unfortunate that in this case, it was kind of directed toward me. But ultimately, exactly as you said, like, I feel a lot of compassion for for this man and for people like him who um, are seeing the kind of things that humans are able to do each other and do to each other in the world. And I mean, frankly, like, how, how do you deal with that? How does anyone deal with that? I think that um, it takes a lot of support and a lot of uh, context and education and compassion to understand why these things are happening and how to want to help every side, you know, every person that's hurting, which is really, you know, just to bring kind of kind of all to a big loop, which is really what about access to psychedelic medicine is about. It's really not about being partisan. It's not about figuring out who deserves something more or less. It's really about acknowledgement that there's a tremendous amount of suffering happening and that there could be ways out of that suffering for some people. Um, but that, you know, social, political context, the reality of the situation is that that isn't all available to everyone who needs it yet. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, the man who cursed you out when you were younger, he's traumatized, you know, and just like a Definitely. lot of people, right? I mean, it's 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 this cycle, this seemingly never-ending cycle of traumatizing and and then you know unleashing on people who don't deserve it and and things like this. And so, it seems like you connected the dots here in terms of the kinds of benefits that psychedelics can bring to people who are suffering and who are experiencing trauma. So, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Like, how how did that then continue on for you that path? Sure. 
Yeah. So the, the, this piece that you mentioned of trauma, I think is the real kind of like underlying foundational concept behind all of this. Um, you know, at the time that that happened, and even it took me quite a few years after that of studying uh, kind of philosophy and mental health and psychology, all the things that I was studying, like, just because I was interested in them, you know, like, I didn't really have a political aim to my education until later in life, really until I went to law school. Um, but I, I did know that there was something to, you know, there was, I was trying to uncover some truth around the human experience. And as you say, the you know this this person's experience and really using this man's experience as a microcosm for like the human experience which is to say that when people are traumatized they respond often by traumatizing others there's this really amazing quote um i'm not sure who it's attributed to but it's used a lot in the context of restorative justice and in kind of like uh, alternative dispute resolution and ways to deal with criminality in ways that don't require punitive responses or punishment which is that um, hurt people hurt people and healed people heal people. Mm. It's a really simple concept, but the idea is that people who commit harm or oppression or pain onto other people are often hurt themselves, and that the line between victim and victimizer and in, in many cases is much more blurry than we originally, when, the, when we might anticipate. Yeah. And then the secondary part of that quote is really beautiful, which is, that healed people heal people. And once, you know, it's an acknowledgement that once people are able to get access to that healing for themselves, um, whether it's through psychedelics or the many, many, many other modalities of healing that are available to us as humans, um, that we can then use that inner healing to bring kind of that healing to other people. So to kind of go back to what you were saying around connecting the dots, I think that, you know, in um, when I was in law school, I really, I, I mean, I had known a lot about and learned a lot about the drug war more generally, kind of like the way that the United States has kind of led the way in the kind of global drug control strategy, especially since the 70s and early 80s. And really, the connecting the dots moment was, for me was when I, because, you know, Early in my kind of education and career, I really focused primarily on foreign policy, on how the United States dealt with other countries, really motivated by my understanding of the post 9-11 um, kind of occupation of Iraq that really kind of influenced my early politics and understanding how that um, how American foreign policy affected other countries for better and for and oftentimes for worse, depending on the context. Mm -hmm. And then once I built the relation, once I realized the relationship between kind of like America's role as like this global police force, um, and then looking at how that was articulated in the United States within our own understanding of mass incarceration and our own kind of uh, structure of criminality in the United States, I realized that, you know, there was really no way around it that the war on drugs specifically was like the one of the primary vehicles of that oppression at home here. Um, and then I started to deconstruct that a little bit more. And over the course of my time at the ACLU, especially when I was working on criminal justice policy reform here in California, um, the, the conversation around kind of victimhood, victim and victimizer became really live because there's a big conversation here in California and in a few other places in the United States around like what effective punishment actually looks like and what we should do when people do things that we think that they should not be doing. Um, and this general agreement that the current scheme, which is to say, like, straight punishment, you know, ag aggressive, violent punishment, um, doesn't work. It causes more trauma, causes more pain. And when people get out of jail or prison, if they do, they often are less, less prepared to deal with the world. Or they're less compassionate. They're less um, 
kind of adjusted to society. Um, and I don't say that, I, I say that with not with the intention of pathologizing people who've been to prison, but to, to bring awareness to how bad the system actually is and how it's designed in many ways to make it di more difficult for people who've gone to prison to readjust. So looking at kind of this whole massive scheme of drug control and really people control, social control in the United States through the war on drugs brought me over and over and over to that issue of trauma and how we deal with trauma in the United States and around the world. And um, the segue from there into kind of looking at psychedelics as a tool for healing trauma felt almost too obvious to be true at first because there's, there's, you know, there is so much and there's an increasing body of evidence that the thing that makes that allows psychedelic medicine or psychedelic therapy to work with people who have experienced trauma, whether it's diagnosable through PTSD or otherwise, is that acknowledgement that in order to deal with a lot of these other auxiliary kind of effects we see that people have, whether it's um, antisocial behavior or violent behavior or, you know, self-harming um, behavior, whatever those are, a lot of them come out of this kind of question around trauma. Um, and that's really like, in my opinion, the key of, of the work that we're doing at MAPS and kind of in this whole movement towards psychedelic therapy and also where, you know, where the edge is. And this is kind of, this kind of goes and we can go in more into it in a bit, I'm sure. But this kind of goes into what Natalie was talking about at Horizons, which is really what is, what do we mean when we're talking about trauma and what is that edge? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I think it's, I think it's at the focal point of, 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 of a lot of our predicaments and a lot of our sufferings. And, you know, you mentioned, yeah. you mentioned the war in Iraq and, you know, yeah, I got very involved in, in being against that and, uh, sure. you know, just all aggressive, you know, foreign empire building, as far as I'm concerned for resources and yeah. power and control, the, the level of trauma that those people experience, I, I can't, I mean, it, it's horrifying. I saw a movie, a documentary called Drone and, you know, the people okay. are, are in Pakistan are talking about how they just, they, they shake and they can't sleep because they hear sounds of uh, noises outside. It might be a drone coming. So it's just, it's unbelievable. And now if we take that back to our own country here, it's like, what kind of things are we doing here? You know, what, what the world police, exactly. like you mentioned, you said the world, like we're being the world police. Well, look at the situation we have with the police here. How are they handling communities? And, and to me, I want to, I want to get your take on this, but I mean, I, I think, you know, to me, it seems like that we have, we just, it, you know, our policy seems to be who cares about poor, uh, you know, brown communities, you know, so to, so to yeah. speak, is, that seems to yeah. be what it, what it is. I mean. So how, how, what do you think about that, about that? Yeah, yeah. I, unfortunately, I agree with you. I, I really look forward to the day that we can have like a real debate about whether or not, you know, mainstream American or law enforcement society um, cares about, or not even law enforcement, just American kind of, as you say, like kind of the imperialistic um, policing enforcer archetype that America is kind of uh, filling right now. Um, I look forward to the day that we can have a real debate about whether or not that's the case. But I agree with you in the sense that I feel like for now, there has yet to be very much evidence that certain communities, in particular communities of color, whether it's in the United States or abroad, uh, don't have the same, like are not being treated within the same kind of, uh, with the same sancti sanctity of life that you see other communities being treated. Frankly, I feel that like this, uh, 
this impression, this kind of like framework where lives, whether they're lives of poor people or brown people or black people or people in the Middle East, like are not being properly like respected and honored is actually just one iteration of a much larger problem, which is just to say that a lot of what I see in high level politics today globally is a disregard for life, period. You know, the, the people that are being most affected for sure are those communities, no doubt. Um, but a lot of these harms are affecting all of us. And a lot of these harms are really, are, are, are uh, kind of being, a lot of these harms are being treated as if they're just the way things are. Yeah. And quote unquote, yeah. the way things are has a disproportionate impact on certain people. Right. But the, I think the way that... things are, the, just to jump in real quick, the, the, yeah, way that, the, the way things are, I think, is has become this system. And the, and the system is like this yeah. machine that just keeps going. It's like, who's at the controls of this thing? No one knows. It just keeps going and it just becomes normalized. And, and people are like, well, it's on autopilot. We can't do anything about it. It's like, yeah, we can. We can change exactly. it. Exactly. No, I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. And, and I'll say that, you know, there's a lot of, especially in the criminal justice reform community, there's a lot of, um, you know, you hear a lot, like the system is, you hear the phrase, the system is broken. The mm -hmm. system is broken. It's not working the way it's intended to. But I think the interesting thing, and I think you probably already know where I'm going with this, is that the system is working exactly as it's designed to, in the sense that it's meant to keep people um, in certain kind of oppressive structures, it's meant to do exactly what it's what it's doing right now, exactly what we see. And what's happening is is less that people are trying to fix the system, and people like myself and other reformers are realizing that we're not really trying to fix the system in the sense that we're not trying to bring the system back to its own homeostasis, because that kind of state that state is one of oppression, is one that requires domination. And rather thinking about what are the alternatives to that system that allow us to take the many, many lessons we've gained and the many benefits we have from the current kind of whether it's drug control or legal system or whatever, and use those elements to create something new that's actually um, accessible to all people and really like authentically structured in a way that's meant to be for the benefit of all people. Yeah. Um, on the on the more general kind of concept about kind of access to treatment and and kind of the way different groups are disproportionately impacted, it really affects how we think about psychedelic law and policy because one of, and this is kind of what, uh, what Natalie was getting at in her talk at Horizons, which is that when people, when, when we do uh, drug policy or criminal justice or psychedelic therapy kind of legal change work, whether it's going through the FDA process to get MDMA approved as a medicine for PTSD, whether it's advocacy around research for uh, Ibogaine for people who are dependent on, on opiates, which is such a live problem in the United States. Um, whatever the advocacy is, it really is only going to be as beneficial. It's only going to be as beneficial as it is accessible, right? And, and until these technologies are accessible, all we're going to have is more of a, or is a further reproduction of the systems that already exist. So concretely what that means is that, you know, as, as, as powerful as psychedelic therapy is, and I have, I really believe in its, you know, in its potential to benefit uh, people's mental health in a variety of contexts, you know, that's the work I, I really, really believe in. It's the work that I do. Um, 
But I also recognize that right now, the mental health paradigm in the United States and the way that we think about trauma is really limited. It's particularly limited to kind of this archetype of what people understand as being trauma or traumatizing. So concretely, what that means is when most people think about PTSD right now, they're thinking about there's two big populations that I think most people are thinking about when they when they're, you know, when they have in their mind's eye populations that are affected by PTSD, which is uh, veterans who have returned home from from foreign wars or from wars um, in a variety of places, which I think is one very real population. And there's a lot of attention to the number of suicides, the number of overdoses, the number of this, the amount of despair that comes from people who've gone to war and returned, and also people who have suffered physical, physical or sexual assault. These are the two really big populations of people, and that that are associated with PTSD and PT and th those are primarily the people who we we've treated in our um, in our trials in our uh, in our trials for MDMA for PTSD therapy mm -hmm. um, through the FDA process. The while while I think it's important and I acknowledge the importance of those populations and I think it's right that we started working with those people. The fact of the matter is, a lot of people who experience trauma who have PTSD are underdiagnosed or improperly diagnosed or, or improperly diagnosed, excuse me, um, simply because their identity and the frame, you know, kind of like their place within the world is not one that's typically associated with that. So there was a study done fairly recently where um, teen teenagers in Atlanta, in inner city Atlanta, experienced the same rates of PTSD, if not higher, than people who return home from war, veterans who return home from war. And we're talking about black Americans, mostly teenagers, who've experienced constant discrimination from the moment they were born until the rest of their lives, right? And for their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And for populations that could experience what uh, researchers like Dr. Monica Williams from um, the, formerly from the University of Kentucky and currently in Connecticut, I believe, Call racial trauma, or what other what other researchers are calling trauma associated with, um, for example, gender dysphoria, and specifically being discriminated for being transgender. Um, people who have experienced basically a variety of ongoing and constant traumas, which are in some ways different than the acute trauma that's associated with the other populations that are often diagnosed with PTSD, basically means that there's a whole there's a whole population of people, multiple populations of people that are not actually diagnosed with PTSD, who have trauma responses, and who also, I think, also just as urgently need access to treatment, need access to kind of innovative medicine like psychedelic therapy, who under the current scheme would not get it because they don't fall under, you know, what society currently deems as having traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about access and kind of like who actually is being harmed by the systems and who's getting access to treatment, the disparity that you talked about early where, you know, black and brown Americans, Native Americans, people, uh, trans people, people who have experienced these on ongoing constant levels of discrimination and harassment and et cetera, um, aren't just underdiagnosed. They aren't just not getting access to treatment. But unless we change our paradigm, they will continue to be underdiagnosed and will continue to not get access to treatment. So one of the, just to kind of wrap this point up, the whole the, the edge for us as people who are working in the space of psychedelic advocacy and for those of us who are really trying to expand the understanding of what it means to be oppressed and what it means to be healed, uh, it's really looking at these populations, people who have been uh, marginalized throughout their lives for generations and who I believe and who, you know, Natalie and a lot of us at MAPS believe 
uh, and a lot of us, you know, as advocates in the field believe, need to be really front and center in that conversation if we're going to be serious about getting access to this medicine in the long run. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's uh, just, you know, such a such a, a really super important need. And uh, is is there also, uh, you know, you're talking about this, and it's like, look, we gotta, you know, we gotta do something because these people are suffering. They're traumatized, but you know, they don't they don't fit in the quote unquote, you know, what society thinks is. But it's, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that it's happening. And not only is it happening. It's a cycle that I think keeps repeating, right? Like, uh, correct me if yeah. I'm wrong, but there's isn't there some kind of like um, uh, genetic kind of transfer of trauma, like uh, intergenerational trauma that that goes from one generation to the next? Absolutely, yeah. So there's a lot of research coming out on kind of epigenetic trauma and yeah, intergenerational trauma exactly. And the traumas that they discovered, especially around kind of racial trauma and uh, identity-based trauma. Um, is often intergenerational. While it's certainly possible and likely that people are experiencing kind of like in the bubble of their own kind of personal experience, a lot of trauma that's associated with discrimination, exactly right, is intergenerational. And the interesting thing is that it even extends beyond people who are personally experiencing it. So for example, there's a lot of research around trauma of people who've survived, who have relatives who've survived the Holocaust, who survived the Holocaust. And thinking about even if the grandchildren or great-grandchildren of these people personally are only experiencing kind of a fraction of that kind of, you know, day-to-day trauma, whether they're, whether they identify as Jewish or they or whatever else, the fact that their ancestors experienced that level of trauma and then the, the subsequent behavior, both that is literally kind of programmed into their DNA and also in the behaviors that occur, um, that's passed down from, you know, family member to family member as a result of that trauma is just as real as, you know, the trauma that someone experiences after being like physically assaulted, for example. It's articulated differently. And the way that people kind of respond to it is different. Mm-hmm. Um, but exactly as you say, like, understanding that tr- trauma is not limited to acute uh, experiences that cause that have, you know, bad lingering effects, but but rather that in addition to this whole other kind of universe of trauma um, is, is really the only way I think that that this conversation around access can can really go forward. Um, yeah. Yeah. And now now we know that, you know, psychedelics can have a, a big impact. You know, I, I know that I've I've had several breakthrough, profound, mystical, spiritual experiences that uh, you know, I, I don't know uh, what would have happened to me if I didn't if I didn't have those experiences, you know, and yes. um, and you yourself, you know, we're talking about that. And obviously that we've seen the studies from places like Johns Hopkins and the studies that MAPS is, are doing with uh, PTSD and MDMA, uh, all these wonderful studies that are going on and, and this research being presented. Now, how how do we so obviously what I'm saying is that we that we know that if we can get people in these communities who experience trauma, this uh, access to this, that it would probably have, you know, the same kind of effects, right? The same kind of major impact and life-changing impacts uh, for them. How how are you guys going about uh, getting getting access and 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 kind of trying to uh, to situate yourself in in these communities and 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 are people in these communities receptive to the message that you're communicating to them? That's a really good question. So I'll I'll push back a little bit first and say that like, you know, we we are because we're on we're working in such a cutting edge space, 
And because the conversation more, more generally around trauma that we're having right now is also really relatively new in the sense that while, you know, Native American research or Native American mental health specialists and people who work with black communities have been talking about this for ages. You know, this isn't it's not a new concept in general. You know, the idea of intergenerational or passed down or trauma as a result of discrimination. These are old concepts that people of color and others have been talking about for a really long time. But it is new in the context of psychedelic therapy and mm-hmm. In, given that psychedelic therapy itself is a fairly new concept, we're talking about a lot of edges, right? We're talking about a lot of um, a lot of new ground that we're trying to build, that we're trying to yeah. Uh, they, they, establish. Uh, they call it the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the the double sell in sales. Uh, you see where it's yeah. like if you have a new app and it it does it has a total new functionality. It's like you got to sell somebody twice on something. So yeah, I, I know what you're talking Definitely. about. Definitely, yeah. definitely. No, that's exactly right. And it's like we're. Um, it's unfortunate that we're still at this point in society where we have to sell the idea of healing, but that's where it, that's where it's at. And you know, just as an aside, I don't really blame people for being skeptical. I think that the um, like the American military establishment, the American medical establishment historically has not been the most um, ethical system, and and it, it it has its own kind of uh, structure that has caused a lot of harm to a lot of people. Um, and and I, I acknowledge and really respect and honor the suspicion that people have around not just, uh, you know, MAPS work specifically around this like kind of new technology of treatment for this very specific uh, trauma based disorder. Like, I really don't blame people for being skeptical. I think that's healthy skepticism is totally merited and valuable, especially in this place where there's all these kind of edges on this new ground. Mm-hmm. Um but to to answer your question, there's there's a couple of big things that are happening. So one, um, you know, my supervisor, Natalie, and I, like we we are both of our backgrounds are in social justice work. She did work. Uh, she did the kind of therapy work with sex workers um, in New York City. She has a lot of experience in that space. Um, and my my background is in criminal justice reform work. And so both of us come come to drug policy with kind of an awareness of other issues and really the intersectionality of the issues that um, affect people who use drugs and people who are kind of just generally being oppressed by society based on their identity. So right now, one of the one of the kind of the philosophy behind all of this is really instead of thinking, well, why aren't people of color or why aren't marginalized communities like excited about our work? Because like I said, there's reason to be suspicious about kind of new changes and these, you know, uh, things that sound too good to be true, you know, whether they're silver bullets or cures that just sound too, um, like too unrealistic, frankly, too good to be uh, something that, that is actually accessible to people. So part of it's, it's this part of, and it's kind of ironic because especially like as an advocate, it's kind of ironic that a lot of what we do, uh, what I do and what we do is acknowledge the limitations. That's the first thing. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of what I, I, I want to just push back a little bit. It's like, yes, I agree that, you know, certain psychedelic substances in certain contexts with the right environment, with the right um, kind of support can be truly transformative. And I don't want to assume that, you know, using um, a substance um, whether it's mushrooms or LSD or MDMA or whatever, um, will inherently cure the issues that we're dealing with, will inherently treat the issues that we're dealing with. Um, that said, you know, as I told you at the beginning of this conversation, like I experienced a lot of this discrimination and a lot of this 
kind of like oppressive structure as a young person and it helped me a lot so without assuming that it'll help other people i do bring you know i do bring my own experience to it on purpose because i recognize that you know i don't expect every person to be totally treated by their by any given experience with psychedelics mm -hmm. i do believe however that access to them is an essential part of what we hope to be a longer term healing process so i just wanted to start with start with that right okay. um but but you know more concretely of course we're do, we're trying to do work to to bring more attention to both marginalized and under-resourced populations in the world of mental health, um, including in the context of, of PTSD or of, of MDMA for PTSD. So, um, you know, we just had our psychedelic science conference in Oakland. There were almost 3,000 attendees. It was a massive, massive conference about all of the things regarding psychedelics and science around the world. Um, we had representatives, people representing almost 50 countries, every age group, every kind of like cultural space you can imagine. And, you know, one of the biggest criticisms that I and others have had of the psychedelic space, um, especially myself as a person of color, is that it's really, you know, there's a, it's very white. It's a very, very kind of like white focused community. And, you know, that makes sense, right? Like the people who are most likely to kind of spend their time and energy in a space that's pretty friends, that's still pretty criminalized, that kind of require, that still has the stigma, um, is, is going to tend to be people who are already feel kind of some security and already feel some sort of, um, Kind of like willingness to take risks, which I think tends to be people who have more privilege, which tends to be people who tend are more white, and that's yeah. true around the world. Yeah. Um, now, it's not the case that everyone at this conference was white, and I'm not saying that like the psychedelic movement is all white people, but there has been this interesting, you know, increasing awareness to the kind of lack of cultural, racial, interpersonal, socioeconomic diversity in the world of psychedelic therapy and advocacy. Um, that that was really live in the context of the com of the conference because we were like, look, if we're going to throw this conference, we got to make sure that we're we're taking you know this dynamic seriously and doing what we can to shift that. So we kind of um, the policy and advocacy department at Maps, myself and Natalie, basically uh, kind of uh, injected a lot of racial and cultural consciousness to. Uh, programming at the conference we we were given a grant by open society foundation to fund 22 people from around the world that all kind of came from a variety of marginalized communities so um, whether it was researchers in india or uh, black americans from oakland you know or, or native americans from washington and from from california from a variety of places and we just brought basically um, and 22 people who kind of fall under the category of marginalized or underrepresented perspectives and brought them to the conference. We were able to pay for their, for their lodging, for their flights. And we were like, Hey, we need your, we need your input in here. We want it. We're seeking it out. And we'll, you know, we'll put our money where our mouth is and actually get you here. So you can be part of that conversation. So one of the things I'm most proud of with respect to the conference is being able to get that group of people together. And hopefully in the next you know couple of months, we'll have some, you know, public content around like what exactly that meant. What were the big critiques that we had and how can we, use these critiques not as like you know a way to shame the psychedelic community necessarily but rather as a way to grow together yeah, um yeah so that's one piece of it we we uh organized and uh, a training around kind of whiteness and privilege and anti-racist practice within the psychedelic community and how to really show up as an ally um, I moderated a panel called um, intersection uh, excuse me psychedelics injustice and the intersectionality of trauma which was exactly about this topic, which is really like looking at intersectional trauma and how trauma affects different identities 
and if and how psychedelics can be used uh, to treat that trauma, basically exactly the question that you asked earlier. Um, and we've also, I'm also really happy to report that we, uh, we've been working closely with Dr. Monica Williams, the, the researcher I mentioned earlier, who's one of the foremost researchers, researchers in the United States around racial trauma and trauma as a result of racial discrimination. And she has come to and participated in our MDMA therapist training and uh, will actually be one of our phase three sites for the FDA approval process. So we will be, at least one of our phase three sites will be dealing with racial trauma, specifically PTSD from racial trauma. And we also support people like this researcher named Jay Sevelius at UCSF, who um, is doing research on uh, PTSD, MDMA for PTSD, specifically in uh, trans folk and trans people, trans populations, trans women in particular. So, you know, for, for as critical as I sounded earlier, it is also true that we and, and others are thinking about how to bring this work to populations that aren't already uh, kind of, who don't already have access to privilege and resources um, and a kind of outside of the white researcher framework. Uh, white Western researcher framework, and the ideas are starting to stick. I mean, you know, the extent to which we're successful is definitely to be determined. I think that we're putting a lot of time and effort into making this a space that's welcoming and inclusive for every identity that's experienced trauma. Um, and hopefully with the phase three process, with the research that comes out of this work, uh, we'll have more of like a concrete evidence-based argument for why we should be getting more people involved in this instead of just, you know, an acknowledgement of the social dynamics, which are very real, but only part of the picture. Yeah. need that, need that, uh, scientific evidence, uh, right. Definitely. That's, that's everybody, Definitely. everybody wants to see, uh, everything quantified and, and stuff. And, you know, I, I guess that's what we have to do when we live in, in this current world that we live in. But, uh, you know, it's it's sometimes a little frustrating uh, when you for me in my own personal experience like uh, you know I could have like this wonderful ayahuasca experience and I'm telling people about it and you know s s certain people are just like well I don't believe in that stuff and it's like well I mean <laughs> you don't really have to believe in it I mean you just have to take yeah. try it but you know the the materialist reductionist mind uh, but but that is the framework in oh. which we're we're working with right i mean that's why maps has been so success successful that's why yeah. you know rick doblin basically said hey i i this is the world that we live in i got to go get the degrees i got to be a professional person uh, i forgot what what he referred to himself as like something like uh i, I don't know I, I forget he said he made like a joke He's What's that? He calls himself an outlaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm just it's like an, an outlaw trying to go legal. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to go legal. That's that's what he was saying. Yeah, but yeah, he's he's great, and the work that he's he's done, and the maps that, he, that he's put together here is fantastic. Um, yeah, it's you know, it, it it is it is interesting. I mean, as you were talking about that, I you know, I have uh, obviously I'm white, and I have a a friend of mine who's a comedian, black comedian in New York, and. And I said something to a bouncer one night. We were at a bar or something like that. And he and he just looked at me as like, man, you're crazy for saying shit like that. He's like, you know, and it's mm -hmm. just that little dy dynamic right there, that little cultural, you know, uh, privilege dynamic or whatever it is where he would never say something like, like he would never sure. have said what I said, but I said it. And it's like, yeah, I guess I'm going to be taking a risk because I have a little bit more privilege or, or whatever, you know? Sure. So it's it's these little things, I think, that it's, 
it's it's oftentimes difficult for people to even know about or even observe because the, it, it's hard to acknowledge something when it's yourself. You know, you have to kind of step outside of yourself. Yeah. Another great thing that psychedelics can do help you step outside of yourself. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I was like, I was like, that's a perfect segue. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So no, I, I, I agree. And I just, just to comment on that really yeah. quickly, I think that um, the, the conversation on like privilege and access to resources is, is interesting because it's really live in the United States right now. You know, you're seeing a lot of conversation around what privilege looks like, what whiteness looks like, what white supremacy means, all of these kind of conversations. And it's, you know, I, I understand why there's so much hesitance because as you said, like it requires an awareness, like a self-awareness that mm-hmm. a lot of people would prefer to avoid because it's not a comfortable truth. But again, kind of bringing this conversation back to psychedelics, part of what makes psychedelic therapy and psychedelic use so powerful is that it unearths all of these really uncomfortable truths that we carry. And, um, you know, I, I'm not, I, I would be, I'm the last person to say that psychedelics will inherently like, you know, get over, help people get over their racial biases. You know, I don't think it's that simple, but I do recognize that the openness that comes out as a result of use can really be used for that, for that kind of benefit in the sense that it can be used to help people be more open and really like kind of see their own blind spots because once, once we acknowledge and realize that we are all learning we're really all on this process you know spaceship earth all together mm-hmm. um which is inherently this like process of exploration and and expanding our knowledge and our 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 awareness of the world and how we how we sh- can and should deal with each other um the the secondary effects of that learning of you know compassion and empathy and uh kind of like this desire to support one another is a really beautiful plus and and while psychedelics don't inha- may not inherently do that for every person, they, with careful use and in the right context, can have a tremendous amount of benefit, not, not only in like the conscious levels of our brain that we're trying to deconstruct, right, but also in those like really deep underlying things that we kind of spend most of our lives trying to avoid because they're really scary. Yeah, yeah, we do. It, it, it is interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes like I, you know, like we're just talking about, you know, I, I have this bias where I just I think like, because I've had these experiences, because my awareness has increased, because I've, I'm able to see a little bit more of a broader spectrum. I almost think like, well, yeah, c- come on, people, can't we all just do this? And, and it really, <laughs> it's, it is, like you said, there's uncomfortable truths. It's, it, there's a difference between, yeah. I guess there's people who are willing to maybe walk towards those uncomfortable truths because they know it'll be better for them. But then a lot of other people that cover them up and a lot of people, and I I see, you know, kids, you know, maybe our age, younger, um, going to a lot of music festivals. I myself went to a lot of music festivals and yeah, yeah, and I love them and they're great. I think they're, they're fantastic (laughs) experiences. I mean, they're some of the best, best times you could ever have, but I think, you know, like right now, like I think the number one song in the country is, futures mask off and the lyrics are molly percocet molly percocet you know which is like well i kind of like one part of that but i don't know about the other (laughs) what do you think i mean what do you think about the culture like the kids the the, this music festival scene the drug you know are are people learning are they having transcendental experiences or is it just like uh party time until adulthood that's a really good question. So I, um, I'll say that for, for my part, a lot of my, uh, like awareness around how psychedelics could be used in a way that benefits 
myself and other people did you know independently this first experience i had when i was 16 like a lot of that really did come out of my experiences in music festival spaces and what people define as recreational spaces which i think is an interesting framework because although it is un you know clear that when people um, go to music festivals or go to places that are really meant for recreational use where you also see extremely high levels of drug use. Um, it, while it's clear that, you know, a lot of those experiences maybe are intentioned around recreation, which people see as being kind of like hedonistic or unintentional or whatever. I do think that the reality is that that's where a lot of people, as you kind of kind of comment mentioned, have their first or have really profound experiences. <clears throat> and we at MAPS acknowledge that, you know, regardless of what we want to happen, whether or not, you know, you, whoever, the, you know, whether or not we come down on a particular side about whether or not it's appropriate or not. Um, the fact is that this this behavior is happening. This use is happening. And being aware of that and building in frameworks, whether it's harm reduction or education or um, integration support, whatever that is, building in kind of structure where people who are having those experiences can come out of them with as positive of an experience as possible um, is really, really important. So it's it's funny that you bring that up because I, I hope, really hope that, you know, that the current generation of people that are spending time and spending a lot of money, you know, going to music festivals, taking a lot of drugs, doing, doing all that stuff are maintaining as much kind of like sovereignty over their personal behaviors as possible, right? That they're educated, that they're aware of what's being put in their bodies, that they're testing the substances that are going in their bodies, not only because it's just good practice for their literal physical safety, but also because more intentionality around that, may result in more benefits and you know the, the number of people that i know who use substances in quote-unquote recreational settings and then had deeply therapeutic or spiritual experiences as a result um i can't even count because a lot of people think that they're going in seeking something hedonistic or recreational find out that a lot of psychedelic use is actually not kind of not that fun because it can be really intense and require you to do a lot of personal kind of introspective work and then come out of it like, whoa, I just learned something about myself. And then, you know, you can land on that as, wow, that sucked. That was a really challenging experience. I, w I hope I never do that again. Or, wow, I learned something about myself. Maybe there's something more here and I should do some more digging. I mean, I definitely fell on the latter side where I had a, I've had multiple challenging experiences with psychedelics over the course of my life. And, you know, we always have the option of being like, well, was this just, quote unquote, a bad trip? Was this something that was bad for me? Was it was it something about the context or the set or the setting? Or is there something coming up, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, is there something coming up that's one of those uncomfortable truths that I'd rather not deal with, but maybe like really need to? Um, and, you know, in the context of festivals and use in recreational settings, um, we at MAPS really strongly believe that therapeutic use can and does happen in those settings. It's kind of inevitable with, with enough context because for some people, you know, you they can't, hold back those traumas they can't hold back those things when they're under the influence of psychedelics and you know the substances don't always care about where you are you know the stuff will come up when it needs to come up um so i think just whether whatever the intention is i think just being aware of that is really really helpful and it's like the biggest piece of advice i would give to young people and that i do give to young people when i speak to them 
where it's like, it's less about, you know, your intentionality is a big part of it, but I really do believe that awareness of the diversity and the, the breadth of possible experience is really important because if you go in thinking you're only going to have a good time trying any substance, especially psychedelics, which are really, really kind of like based on really that, that are based on and that j- kind of um, come out of really deep neurocognitive functioning and processes, um, then you're in, you're gonna you're in for it, right? You're gonna be in for a surprise at at, the, at best because it's not always recreational, it's not always fun. And and yeah. if you think about it purely as something that's fun, then you know you might you might be surprised. You might have an experience you're not really prepared for. Hopefully, you're at a festival that has a Zendo tent. We had uh, Sarah Gale on here uh, not too long ago, and she's just amazing uh, with the work that they're doing. The Zendo is just a phenomenal uh, project. It's amazing. It's really, it, and it's funny because it's really like, it sounds really radical. Like when, when a lot of people, you know, when people first hear about the idea of psychedelic harm reduction at festivals, it sounds pretty radical, but really it's just mental health support. It's kind of like a mental health hotline, which we have all over the place, right? You have suicide hotlines, you have hotlines for people who've gone through different kinds of abuse and not, not to like trivialize those experiences. But the fact is that when people go through challenging experiences, they need support. It's a really simple concept, right? And bringing that to psychedelics is only radical because psychedelics are presently criminalized. But, you know, you know, I know, we all know that these things are getting used regardless of their criminal status. You know, there's plenty of people who don't care about that. Um, And I, I totally agree. It's just, it's amazing work. And it's just, it's goes to show that these substances can be used even in quote unquote recreational settings at festivals or whatever, um, in a way that's mindful and that can result in personal benefit. If big, if that supportive structure exists and, and is part of the part of that equation. Yeah. I mean, when you're at some of these, you know, amazing festivals, like, uh, you know, lightning in a bottle or, you know, I mean, I know burning's burning man is not really a, you know, a traditional music festival per se, but when you're at, when you're at any of these gatherings where obviously, I mean, everybody there is happy is is feeling good because, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, people that are, you know, taking all kinds of different things. And so there, it's almost to me, like the realization that I had at my first experience, it was at Coachella actually. And at my first, my first experience was, wow, this is amazing. Like society could almost be, or this is like, like a, I had a, a th- like a, like a, this is like beta testing for like a yeah. utopian level society. You know, like we oh, have, yeah. we have people who are uh, all getting along here. And then with the inclusion of something like a Zendo, where it's like, okay, listen, we're trying to introduce uh, something that involves harm reduction, you know, th- um, de-escalation, not escalation, not, exactly. you know, not police coming with batons and guns and things like that. And, and exactly. Right. So I think that if we can project that kind of vibe out onto the macro stage, onto the national stage, the global stage, into infuse that into society, I think there's a hope with our generation if they learn the values and the importance and come in with an intention, like you said. You know, there's a difference between, I think, like just this this kind of hedonistic, um, you know, hedonistic kind of play and and maybe a more kind of mystical sort of anarchism that, that, that allows for voluntary cooperation between people. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about seeing how everything unfolds. I mean, there's just so much, there's so much to, to look forward to. There's so much positive to, to, to push forward for and the work that you guys are doing is, is really, truly tremendous. What, what kind of things do you have coming up? Or are you, uh, 
what kind of projects are you currently working on right now? Yeah. Um, so I, first off, I appreciate those reflections and I, I totally agree with you. I just have to say that like the relationship between cooperative anarchy and hedonistic play is very blurry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, and I, I appreciate what you said because it, it kind of acknowledges that, you know, the future that we're hoping to create will have all of these elements, right? It will have this really kind of like ideal cooperative dynamic that we, we, I, I love the, the beta testing kind of metaphor because we're really, you know, in a lot of these psychedelic spaces, whether they're at festivals or otherwise, like a lot of what you see, a great example is Boom Festival, which is in Portugal, which is a really, really, you know, openly psychedelic festival, which, uh, and the, the idea is really just like, we can do things differently. We just need to figure out the container and the structure within which to do that. Right. Which is a great way yes. to answer your question, which is what are we doing? Because, you know, like, what does that mean? You know, as, as an attorney and as someone who works with the law specifically, I've been thinking a lot about what those regulatory structures look like. And the first conclusion I've come to is that there's no way in hell that I can figure out the answers to this stuff by myself, hmm. because this is, you know, in, in the spirit of cooperation, the work that we're trying to do here is not about a hierarchical top-down structure, which is how most of the law and criminality and most regulatory structures are built, but rather something that's co-created by members of a community um, that's responsive to the needs of that community. And, you know, so in that vein, like, you know, identifying who the community is that we're trying to serve, whether it's people who, you know, whether it's as narrowly defined as people who've been diagnosed with PTSD who could benefit from it from MDMA or something broader, like people who have been traumatized in their lives and could benefit from a carefully structured, legal, uh, safe use of, you know, psychedelic of, of a psychedelic in a specific context to even broader to people who've experienced trauma and who are oppressed, you know, like who's our, who exactly we're trying to deal with here. So, um, on the question of like what we're doing, well, um, you know, we're going to be continuing a lot of our outreach, um, that I mentioned earlier, specifically to not just marginalized communities, but to to spaces and to issues that are important for all communities, in, in, including and and very much so for marginalized communities, whether they're communities of color, Native American communities, or or whoever else. Um, and, and I say that because you know, Maps has has done amazing work in this in the realm of scientific research. And, but, but it's, it's kind of had the benefit of kind of, I kind of touched on this earlier. It's kind of had the benefit of flying under the radar, even in the conversation more, more generally around drug policy. Um, because a lot of drug policy more generally has been about issues like harm reduction and legal access to cannabis, two major, major issues, but issues which to many people are much more urgent. And as a result have kind of a little bit more of this kind of like impression of urgency. So part of what we're hoping to do with, the movement around legal access to psychedelics is help people realize and kind of like bring attention to the fact that access to psychedelics is not like just this like fringe group of hippies from the 60s that like think that we should open our minds, right? That it's actually something that's very deep and very, very about global, you know, excuse me, uh, global healing via, via individual work. So a big part of what's what's happening next is really kind of connecting these conversations, connecting access to psychedelics to issues around criminal justice policy reform and human rights and social justice, and recognizing that you know access to something that not only can be used as medicine, but that's also used in religious contexts, in spiritual contexts, in contexts of self development, personal development, um, is really essential to our progress as a society. So that's one piece. But more concretely, what that means is that we're going to be doing a lot of advocacy, a lot of legal uh, advocacy um, 
in the next few months, specifically on a few topics. I'll pull them up actually, so I can just read them out to you because there's, there's, they're pretty interesting. Sure. Um, so, so we're going to be spending. We we've been talking a lot about um, research for ibogaine um, in the United States, specifically research for ibogaine as a treatment for opiate use disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I don't need to go into the details of the opiate epidemic. I'm sure you and your listeners know all about it, but yeah. Because there's so much kind of uh, urgency and people see this, you know, people are using the word epidemic, right? They're, they're seeing this urgency and this incredible increase in overdoses and deaths and kind of harm from overuse of addictive substances like opioids. And we're really thinking about, you know, MAPS just released uh, just last month and, and last Friday, actually, just released two very recent observational studies about the use of Ibogaine for treating opiate use disorder. Um, and I think that those studies, in addition to a lot of other research that's been done in the last year that's kind of aggregated the research, is showing that we should be doing a lot more research on this particular topic. So we're hoping to kind of ramp up our advocacy around access to, or excuse me, not access, about uh, research for Ibog- of Ibogaine for opiate use disorder. Um, we're going to be continuing to work in the space around uh, MDMA for PTSD, I think specifically um, looking at kind of like how much like how much money could society like you know an organization like the VA or other organizations save by 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 instead of funding you know co- uh, constant palliative day-to-day uh pharmaceutical use for the entirety of the lives of people who experience PTSD but rather looking at treatment options where you know the ultimate cost would be a lot lower because you're dealing with just fewer you know fewer fewer points of contact between the person who's been traumatized and their and the people who are treating them um you know it it's unfortunate that we have to think about these things in the context of how much money we're saving but as you said earlier like the reality is that we're living in a society that's really motivated by and based on um financial considerations and rightfully so i'm not i'm not discrediting them as being valuable i just think that you know, it's one piece of a much larger puzzle, which is to say, like, you know, if we're trying to deal with healing, we we have to be thinking also about what would motivate large organizations or institutions to support us and support other organizations that are doing this research for that healing. Um, so hopefully in the next few months, we'll be we'll be publishing quite a few fact sheets um, around some of these topics, um, just kind of for people to get rapidly, quickly and accurately educated on these issues. Um, primarily, you know, especially as I said, because I'm working in the legal space, I'm I'm particularly thinking about um, influencing policymakers and lawyers and people who work, legal professionals, people who work in the space of drug policy and drug policy reform, who, um, or, or who, who work in the space of reform, who may not already know about some of these kind of specific details of how the treatment works or how the benefits are, et cetera. Um, and then ideally that will lead to some more formal documentation, especially in the MAPS policy and advocacy realm. We're hoping to publish some white papers later this year um, around, like I said, Ibogaine research and funding, around MDMA research and funding. Um, we're still thinking a lot about um, cannabis, not only in the context of research for drug development, but also as a substitution therapy, also for opiate use disorder, there's an increasing uh, body of evidence that cannabis is effective replacement therapy for people who have um, dependency on on opiates. And I think that although you know the idea of using one substance to replace another substance kind of is, is you know kind of freaks people out and is a little bit threatening in some contexts, um, a lot of advocates believe that you know looking at cannabis as an option is much more is much safer than something like methadone or something like 
or the alternative, which is just staying on whatever substances that people are dependent on. So we're, we're thinking about going toward that. And then the other big piece um, is looking at what, like kind of like what structures in international law can we start thinking, can we start kind of critiquing and using to make arguments for our access to psychedelics in preparation for this uh, session that we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation in 2019. So it's kind of like, it was kind of a lot of pieces, but there's kind of this stratification, you know, we're starting at this kind of general, really broad international law, human rights framework, and then kind of getting more and more specific depending on the audience and depending on the topic. Um, and hopefully that means just a lot of content creation and a lot of kind of free accessible content for the public over the course of 2017 and into early next year um, from, from maps, policy and advocacy um, in a way that I think will, will help fuse um, the research that we've been doing and also this kind of like vision that you and I have been talking about today that's about more than just research. So that's really about um, access to medicine and safe and responsible contexts. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, thank you to you and to your team and to everybody at MAPS for doing this work. I mean, you know, thanks for doing all the legwork for the rest of us, essentially, you know, I mean, thanks for fighting the good fight and, and, and not giving up and, and, you know, doing what, uh, what I feel is, is the right thing to, to be done. And I, and I love how you say, you know, getting access, getting, because it, it, it really is just about giving people an option to have a choice. Just to say, hey, look, there's an there's another way of doing things here. Let's at least give people the access to that, and let's at least give people the choice, and then hopefully we can live in a more compassionate and caring world where we don't have to harm each other or cause trauma onto each other, but we can exist in a totally new, elevated consciousness, a totally new paradigm. And you guys are definitely contributing to that. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for being on on this podcast today, and uh, tell people where they can receive updates about all the one i'll just yeah uh, let's just jump back in it yeah we drop we dropped the call and we're just going to jump i'm real with my audience i keep it real Perfect. so yeah so Perfect. as we're we're wrapping up here and you know i just i just uh extended a, a thank you to you to, to all the wonderful work that you're doing and and i want to let uh my listeners know where they can follow your work where they can stay updated on things anything else twitter facebook the fl flood of supporters yeah <laughs> um I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. And um, I'll say that it's a total honor to be doing this work. And I, I actually like, you know, maybe in another conversation, we can go into like the specific details about how the hell I ended up here, because it's really just this amazing kind of process that started with all the stuff I just described, you know, as my as an early teenager, and then became this whole other kind of like path. But, um, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a real like honor and pleasure to be able to do this work because it's so close to my heart. It's close to your heart, right? It's like, yeah. we're really committed to this because we really believe it has the potential to have positive change in the world. Um, and you know, we see, you know, people, compassionate people see a lot of suffering and recognize that. And I think, um, the, you know, the least I think I can do is kind of like serve, you know, serve that process and serve that process of, of healing. Um, healed heal, right the healed heal exactly yeah. exactly and and you know if we can help more people whether they're friends or family members or ourselves heal then we're at least on the right track you know like i'm an i'm a perma optimist i like really believe in in the the potential for people to uh like do good if given the opportunity to do so so we're just kind of trying to figure out how to get people opportunity you know that opportunity to, to do that good um I but that, to yeah. answer your question 
Yeah, yeah, to answer your question, well, I uh, I think that by the end of the summer, so hopefully by around August or so, the MAPS policy and advocacy space will have our own, um, kind of we'll have our own like kind of page on the MAPS website. So I'll be sure to update you when that happens so you can kind of like actually send people to a specific page. Cool. Um, but in the meantime, um, I love talking, like, I, I really enjoy having these conversations. I am available via email. My email is my name, I-S-M-A-I-L, Ismail at maps.org. Um, I am on Twitter, but I haven't been very active lately. But my my handle is sage underscore Izzy, S-A-G-E underscore I-Z-Z-Y. Um, and, and yeah, I, I am... I've written some stuff on Symposia. I have some writing on the Maps Bulletin. I'll be doing some more writing this summer, um, probably both for Maps and otherwise. Um, hopefully be on the lookout for some op-eds as well about uh, specifically Ibig access to Ibogaine and research in the United States around Ibogaine. Um, because like I said, that's a really live topic and I think something that has a lot of potential for growth in the United States. Um, but yeah, I... I welcome more conversations both with you and others. Like I think that, like I said earlier in the call, like I don't really know um, everything. And frankly, I think anyone who claims to know everything is probably kind of, kind of making some stuff up because we're talking about, we're talking about some edges and we're talking about some really new spaces. And I think the least we can do is, is have the, um, at least have the wherewithal to listen to one another, you know, and to really spend time um, understanding what each other's needs are. Because if we're going to be creating this new framework together, then we actually have to, you know, do the hard work of listening and paying attention to, to whatever happens next or to whatever we can do to make it, make it a deal. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the people that claim to have known everything are the ones that got us into the situation that we find ourselves in today. So uh, exactly. I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. Fight on. And uh Thank you so much for, for being on the show. And yes, you uh, open invitation, come back whenever you want, and we'll talk more about uh, some, some other interesting areas and some uh, personal stories and whatnot. That sounds wonderful. Thanks so much for the time, Mike. I really appreciate it. It's great to meet you. Thank you, Ismail. It's an honor. Take care. Have a good one. Peace. Well, there you go, folks. Ismail Ali, MAPS policy advocate. Really a uh, pleasure speaking with him. You know, I, I say it a lot on the show. Um, I, I always say, you know, it's a pleasure, it's an honor, it's a privilege. It really is, you know, and, and it's, it, I, I feel like sometimes, I don't know, maybe if it's my own self-critique or, or whatever, but I don't want to come off as, uh, you know, just being one of these people that, uh, you know, just, just kind of says anything to anybody. But I really do find that most of the conversations that I have on this show are with people who are doing groundbreaking, revolutionary things. People who are really, you know, uh, Ismail didn't get into doing uh, the work that he's doing to, you know, make it rain, you know, to to for for all the for for the the riches and the glory. He got into it because of a serious personal commitment and a passion. And when I find that I when I find people like that, when I find the others. You know, as as um, as they say, find the others. You know, when you meet the others, when you connect with the others, when you when you when you are able to vibe on a certain kind of consciousness playing field, and we're able to share these things with other people, that's how we start moving the ball. That's how we start turning the ship over. 
That's how we start creating new spaces, new ways of thinking, new ideas, new environments to exist in. And what is it all for, right? It's all so we can live happier and healthier, be kinder to each other, and an environment that caters to us, that feeds us, not us feeding it, not serving it, but it's serving us and us living in, a, in, in harmony, in balance. And that takes work. It takes a lot of work. And so I applaud the work that somebody like Ismail uh, is doing and has done, the, the trials and the journey that he has taken to get to where he is and continues to do so. So these are, in my opinion, you know, these are people who are, you know, like we had the, the dot-com boom, you know, web 2.0. Well, this is psychedelic 2.0. This is these are the Steve Jobs and the you know Bill Gates of the psychedelic techno technology community. You know, this is psychedelics are a technology. Understanding is a technology. You know, all this stuff. Just understanding who we are, where we come from, why we suffer, how we can help each other, and having empathy and compassion and caring for other people to live happier lives, to have access, like Ismail says, to have access, to have choices. And that's all we can really ask for. So I thank all of you for listening to this wonderful conversation that uh, we had here today. Uh, if you guys like this show, if you like conversations like this, if you want to see more conversations like this, please go onto iTunes and leave me a nice five-star rating and review. That would be really stupendous if you could do that because then the more ratings and reviews we have, the way that iTunes algorithm works, when we get a lot of ratings and reviews all at once, so if you guys go and you leave ratings and reviews right now on iTunes and I get like 10 new ratings and reviews, I, the algorithm pushes the, the show up higher into the charts. We might even hit the new and noteworthy section. We'll get more notoriety and we'll be able to spread this message even further. You know, I love this. I love the fact that the show is growing and that there's more and more people listening to it every day. It, it warms my heart because I am deeply passionate and committed to um, helping other people because I have been helped and now I want to help. Like, like our wonderful guest today, Ismail Ali said, uh, you know, I really just enjoyed this conversation. What a, what a great guy. Seriously. Uh, go follow his, his work and, and just, re, you know, Listen to this conversation, share it with your friends, do whatever you can, but know that there's people out there like him and, 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 uh, and Natalie and the people over at MAPS, you know, fighting for our rights and fighting for our liberties. Um, so, you know, these are real pioneering, revolutionary types of people. And with that being said, that'll conclude our show for today. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. You know what to do if you like the show. Share it, like it, subscribe, share it with your friends. Talk about it. Leave iTunes ratings and reviews. You can also support the show on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Mike Brank and you can support the show that way. It's all about spreading this message, integrating this message into the mainstream, and creating a whole new loving consciousness community of humans. Thank you, everybody.